Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. invite you to turn in Holy Scripture to Isaiah 40, either to turn in your Bible or to turn your Bible on, as the case may be. Hear then what Holy Scripture says. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling, in the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass. And all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, Here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust in the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. With whom then will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? As for an idol... A metal worker casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. 
A person too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. They look for a skilled worker to set up an idol that will not topple. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. This is the word of the Lord. Now on Saturday evening, the organizers of this conference gave me 15 minutes to outline Isaiah. But in the supposition that some of you here today weren't there then, let me repeat a couple of features of the outline so you have a good grasp of where we are in the book. It's important to see how Isaiah 40 fits into the argument of the entire prophecy. A lot of people think that the first part of the book of Isaiah runs from chapter 1 to the end of chapter 39 then chapter 40 to 55, then chapter 56 to 66. And that has a certain kind of sense to it. But some, in my view convincingly, make the first part run to 36, chapter 1 to 36. And then 37, 38, and 39 are sort of tra transitional. I'll explain why in a moment. It's important. And then the the, the series continues. In chapters 1 to 36, the prophet Isaiah is addressing the circumstances of his own day. The regional superpower was the mighty empire of Assyria. There were regional conflicts that he had with Reason and Pekah, the, Assyr the Assyrians and the Ephraimites, but the regional superpower, the real death threat, was the mighty empire of Assyria. And during this time, the picture of the promised Messiah is presented as the king. We saw that briefly yesterday. Unto us a child is born, unto us 
a son is given. He shall reign on the throne of his father David. Of the increase of his kingdom, there will be no end, and so on. So the Messiah is anticipated as a king. But in chapters 36, 37, 38, instead of these oracles that come along, you have a little bit of Israelite history. What you find is the attack on Jerusalem by Sennacherib, one of the greatest and one of the last of the great Assyrian kings, and how God, uh, through the leadership of Hezekiah, uh, held on and held on, and then God sent some sort of plague or, or disaster through the massed hordes of uh, Assyrian soldiers, and something under 200,000 men died in one night. That's chapter 37. 38, 39 is still about Hezekiah. The reason they need to be tied together, 36, 37, 38, 39, is because what happens through Hezekiah's time prepares us for the next section of the book where the regional superpower is Babylon. You will recall the story. It's one of the saddest anywhere in Holy Scripture. You, 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 find, you find this man... Hezekiah, maybe preening his feathers just a wee bit in the light of what has been done. He, he has been a good king. He, he, he is faithful in seeking the face of God when Sennacherib attacks. That's all made clear in chapter 37. But in chapter 38, some emissaries from the rising power of Babylon visit his kingdom. And he acts like an eastern potentate, showing off and look at this treasure and look at that treasure. You see all the gold we've got on the temple and the silver over here and it's it, 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 it a pretty cool place. You, you, you know, are you impressed? And not thinking about how these emissaries are sort of proto-spies who are making notes of everything because they have visions of world power themselves. So eventually they go back and then the prophet confronts Hezekiah and said, who are, who, who are these, uh, these um, emissaries that have, that have been sent? And uh, he, he answers quite uh, frankly. He says, uh, they're emissaries from Babylon. I was just showing them all the blessings that God has given us. <coughs> then we read 39.3, Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and asked, what did these men say and where did they come from? From a distant land, Hezekiah replied, they came to me from Babylon. What did they see in your palace? They saw everything in my palace. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord Almighty. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your predecessors have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, who will be born to you, will be taken away and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. In other words, they'll be castrated. And Hezekiah replies, here it is, one of the saddest lines of the Old Testament. The word of the Lord you have spoken is good, Hezekiah replied, for he thought there will be peace and security in my lifetime. All he wanted was comfort food, a little snack of blessing, without any care for his own children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, let alone for his responsibilities as king over the nation. Sounds good to me, he says. I got off easy. Comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord. 
because you're not going to get much comfort out of even a good king. So the next section, which runs from chapter 40 through to 55, finds Isaiah foreseeing what will happen when the Babylonian superpower is rising. And in this set of visions, again calling the people to repentance, the promised Messiah is depicted as a servant. And of course, all of us are aware of the so-called fourth servant song, Isaiah 52, 13 to 53, 12, this one who was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. And then the last section, 56 to 66, envisages what happens from that period on with the Babylonians and beyond, beyond through the recovery under the Medo-Persian Empire with glimpses all the way down to the new heaven and the new earth, which still lies ahead of us. We'll come to that one Friday night. So what we find here is an intrusion. The people are threatened with exile, now to Babylon instead of to Assyria, with the destruction of Jerusalem, the suspension of the Davidic kingdom, the crushing of the temple, but never ever doubt God's ability, his willingness, still less his determination to rescue his own covenant people in due course. The point is that God will prove his superiority over all superpowers, over all idols, over all forces of destruction. He will demonstrate this by doing something new. He will save his people. He will rescue them. He will bring them back to the land. He will destroy Babylon. He will restore Jerusalem. That runs right through chapters 41 to 44. And hence, comfort Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed. So the opening 11 verses of our chapter, chapter 40, provide a wonderful introduction to these prospects in four stanzas. And then we'll see that the rest of the chapter talks about God, his utter incomparability and his utter dependability. But let's begin with these four stanzas that introduce the whole chapter. Number one. The first stanza says, the time is at hand for God to provide comfort for his people, not judgment and retribution. Comfort, comfort my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service, that is the judgments that have befallen her, her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Two details. First, this time of coming comfort for God's covenant people, for Jerusalem, follows a period of judgment. She has been experiencing a period of hard service, but that hard service in the vision has been completed. Her sin has been paid for. That is, she suffered a great deal of punishment herself. She's paid for sin. And when you stop to remind yourself of Old Testament history, you, you see how often that is the case. The flood. 
The people paid for their sin with the destruction of their own livelihood and of their own being, of their own earth. The periods of the judges when the idolatry multiplied and the orgies multiplied and the, 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 the various uh, paganisms uh, around uh, overtook the, the, the nation and they became more like the surrounding nations than like the covenant people that they actually were. God raised up the Philistines and the Midianites and other uh, hordes of marauding griffs until eventually the people cried to God for mercy and raised up a judge, a Deborah, uh, a Gideon. They suffered. In substantial measure, they paid for their sins. And then in due course, the Lord says, in effect, comfort, comfort my people. But you might well ask, what does it mean to say that she has received double for all her sins? Wouldn't that make God a wee bit unfair? I mean, if you sin so much and there's the punishment and then God wallops them again with a double dose, that doesn't seem very equitable, does it? Well, there are two ways of taking this uh, Hebrew clause. It could simply be a bit of hyperbole. That is, it could simply mean she's received ample punishment. She has received punished generously for her sin. She deserves it. She got the double punishment she deserves. It could simply be taken that way. But in Hebrew, there is not only a singular verb form and a plural verb form, but a double ver verb form, a dual, it's called. And when the verb that's used here is in dual form, as it is here, it can mean something like folded rather than double. So if I have a piece of paper and I fold it in half, it's a folded piece, not a double piece, it's a folded piece. And if there is writing on one side, which is transferred to the other side, then I've got a replica, an image, an exact image, when it's splattered on the other side. Do you, do you see? In which case, the idea means something like this. You've received the replica of your sin, the equivalent, what exactly matches. You've received exactly what was owed you. And then that reminds us of passages like Romans 3, 25 and 26, where where through the sacrifice of Christ, God determines both how to be just and to justify the ungodly because, because he provides the sacrifice himself that precisely meets the need. In any case, the point here is that this coming time of comfort for God's covenant people for Jerusalem follows a period of terrible judgment. The second detail in this first stanza is very important. God's people, according to verse 2, had received from the Lord's hand the punishment that they deserved. So the anticipated comfort cannot be thought of as a kind of payment for unjust suffering. The point is they had suffered justly from God's hand. It's not that God owes his people comfort, as if God is saying, okay, you've suffered enough, you poor folk. Now let me dole out a bit of comfort. Uh, up to now, you've, you, you, you've, you've suffered greatly. Now, 
what would you like for comfort food? A brownie, maybe? A big chocolate one? Up, up to now, you've been, reading, you've been eating celery. L let me get you a fat, juicy hamburger with bacon. Have some comfort. You deserve it. Do you, do you see? That's not the image here at all. The, the image instead is that you've received the punishment you've deserved. She has received from the Lord's hand punishment for her sins. The comfort, in other words, is not payback or payment. The tender proclamation is a sign of pure grace. Because it's not as if the people have stopped sinning. But God, in His movement through redemptive purposes, comes to that point in redemptive history where He says, I've poured out judgment and you've deserved it. Now in sheer grace, I'm pouring out comfort. And later we see in the book, God says repeatedly, you don't deserve it, but I give it anyway because I'm that kind of God. Comfort, comfort my people. That's the first stanza, chapter 40, verses 1 and 2. The second stanza. The time is at hand for God to provide comfort for his people by his own personal intervention, verses 3 to 5. A voice of one calling, in the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord. In other words, it is the Lord who is coming. Make, a straight, make, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So this picture of filling up the valleys and lowering the mountains is to make a superhighway. In other words, the aim here is not to think in ecological terms or scenic valleys along the River Severn or something. It's nothing like that. It's, it's God is coming so dramatically, so quickly. What you do is you fill in the valley, you lower the mountains, you, you make a superhighway because He's coming and He's coming quickly and dramatically. That's the picture. So that when you explain or unpack the filling up the valleys or lowering the mountains, what it really boils down to is prepare for God. Repent. Get rid of all the obstacles that hinder God in His coming. What hinders God in His coming? Well, in one sense, you can never hinder this God. But there is another sense in which you hinder God by prevailing with your sin. Get rid of the bumps. Fill in the holes. Make a highway for the coming of the Lord God. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley will be raised up. Every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level. The rugged place is king, a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And then, typical of Isaiah, a little glimpse toward the future. This is for more than just Jerusalem. All people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Isaiah keeps inserting these little glimpses of the future that go way, way beyond the blessings promised to Israel and Judah. One of the most dramatic is in chapter 19, which, of course, we have not taken time to look at. But let, re, let me remind, it, remind you of it. In chapter 19, we read, verse 23, in that day the day of the Lord's visitation, there will be a highway from Egypt, that is the superpower in the south, to Assyria, the superpower in the north, with Israel stuck between the two. The Assyrians will go to Egypt and the Assyrians to Assyria, 
and the Egyptians to Assyria, the Egyptians and Assyrians will worship together. In that day, Israel will be the third along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing on the earth. The Lord Almighty will bless them saying, blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. So although there are lots of depictions of God's judgment on Assyria as the regional superpower that is so barbarically cruel, yet there are further anticipations, vision down the road, when God will make even the enemies, the regional barbaric superpowers, his own people, so that Assyria is my people and Egypt is my people along with Israel my people. You, you, you see, you have visions here that are finally fulfilled only in the Great Commission, that are finally fulfilled only in a vision like that of Revelation 17, uh, 7. We'll say more about those things in the next two days. Isaiah is wonderful for his anticipations of the end. What is dramatic here is that the voice that announces the coming of the Lord, that demands that people make a way forward, is picked up by John the Baptist. You recall the passage, Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, when John the Baptist says that, he means it's come near precisely because God is about to be introduced. He's coming near to his people. He's about to begin his ministry in the person and work of Jesus. When Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near, he means something just a little bit different. But that's clearly what John the Baptist means. For, Matthew says, this is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. So John the Baptist picks up the words of Isaiah, this voice of one calling, prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. 700 years later, just in time to introduce the ministry of the Lord Jesus. The Lord is the one who is coming. Number three, no human form or human power or human condition can prevail against God and His Word. Verses 6 to 8. That's the third stanza. No human form, human power, or condition can prevail against God and His Word. A voice says, cry out, a disembodied voice. It's not further explained presumably from heaven itself. And I, presumably Isaiah, speaks and he says, what shall I cry? What's the message you want me to preach? Cry! What shall I cry? This is what you are to cry. All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. Isn't that spectacular? Verses that are picked up several times in the New Testament. All flesh, all people are temporary. What is so stunning is that we're told that it's their faithfulness which lasts about as long as a flower does. That is, their good points, their times of revival, their reformations, their public repentance, their faithful sacrifices, their good deeds. 
Okay, sometimes they do indulge in these things, and yet it turns out that it's all short-lived, about as long-lasting as a shrinking violet in a temperate climate where the cold season comes in and shuts the plant down. What is there against that that really does endure? The people are grass. If revival and reformation, if the visitation of God and the person and work of the Son depends finally on how hard we've tried to bring it in, we don't have a hope. We're a damned brood. Our faithfulness itself lasts as long as the summer flowers. God help us, none of us is an evergreen. One remembers other texts with similar insight. Job 14, mortals born of women are a few days and full of trouble. They spring up like flowers and wither away. Like fleeting shadows, they do not endure. Which is why the public proclamations of isms and wasms is a pretty hopeless business because at the end of the day, Caesar dies. The Pope dies. Mao dies. Stalin dies. Hitler dies. The dictator in Cambodia dies. The blood-leashing terrorists in Central Africa die. The Tutsis and Hoopos, they die. The secular empires of the West die. Have you met an Assyrian recently? And all our dreams are one with Nineveh and Tyre. What endures? God. And his word as to what he will do. It's the only thing you can trust. That's the framework in which God says, comfort, comfort my people. Fourth stanza. The display of God's sovereignty and goodness as good news brings comfort to God's troubled people. Verses 9 to 11. You who bring good news to Zion, the good news being that God is coming. God is arriving. God is coming to bring his own blessing. Go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Zion, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. The ultimate good news is not a program. It's the presence of the living God. And he brings with his power and ultimately we see 
through his son, who is the suffering servant who is wounded for our transgressions. He brings all the transformation, the forgiveness of sin, the outpourings of the new age, the promise of the spirit. He brings it all about, finally fulfilled in the consummation of the new heaven and the new earth that is introduced by Isaiah at the end of the book. Here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. So all of this is the introductory message of verses 1 to 11, comfort, comfort my people. Then the rest of the chapter focuses on this God in two sweeping announcements, two sweeping assertions. Number one, he is the incomparable God. And number two, he's the dependable God. Let me show you the flow of the argument. Number one, he's the incomparable God from verses 12, from verse 12 to verse 26. It's divided into two parts. He's the Lord of all creation, 12 to 20. Let, let me draw your attention just to a few passages on the fly. 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? That is, all the waters of the planet Earth. Can you control them? Measure them? Calculate them? But they're just like a few drops in God's hand. It's his design. Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales? In fact, he's about to say that all the superpowers like Assyria and Babylon, like Russia, the United States, they're, they're, they're like the fine dust of a balance. They don't mount to much. Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Does God really need counselors to tell him what to do? Boris apparently does. Trump certainly needs them. But on the other hand, does God need counselors? Who was it that taught him knowledge? Verse 14. Or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They're regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. So here we find the Lord of all creation, verses 12 to 20. Then the Lord over all creation, verses 21 to 26. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. Verse 23, he brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. All these people who think they get in because they're politically so astute or militarily so powerful, they could not get anywhere in their vocations, in their sense of call, in their self-appointed self-importance apart from God's sanction. And if anyone becomes too big for his britches, then you're reminded of the parable that Jesus told us about the foolish farmer. You fool. Tonight your soul shall be required of you. Small wonder that Jonathan Edwards, when he depicted sinners in the hands of an angry God, pictures God, as it were, holding each of us over the jaws of hell itself. And all God has to do is let go. 
You're still counting on that heartbeat, aren't you? Do you not know you're sustained by the power of God? No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. He's the incomparable God. To whom then will you compare me? Verse 25. Or who is my equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens who created all these. He is simply incomparable. Away from the speculative approaches to theology proper, to the doctrine of God, that are arguing about limitations that he might have in this vein or another vein, he is the God who knows everything, not only all that has been and is and all that will be, but all that might have been under different circumstances. He knows it all. He's the God who can do it all. He's the God who is everywhere and is inescapable. Where shall I flee from your presence? If I fly to the wings of the dawn, you are there. If I descend to the pit of Sheol, you are there. Even there, your hand will find me. He's inescapable, immovable, incomparable. But he is also, verses 27 to 31, dependable. His people may whine quite a lot. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. I'm in a sorry plight, and God doesn't care for me. He doesn't love me. I'm suffering far too much. Do you not know? Have you not heard the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? He will not grow tired or weary. In his understanding, no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. And then he looks for an example, a contrast to make the point. And he says, even youths grow tired and weary. Young men stumble and fall, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They discover that this God is dependable. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. We must not think for a moment that those of our brothers and sisters in Christ who are going through real systematic opposition in the world around us, and their numbers are increasing. The percentage of Christians under political pressure is increasing in the world. We must not for a moment think of them in romantic terms. They weep tears. They suffer loneliness. And a small percentages of them are tortured. I've had former students beheaded. Nor do we have the right to start imagining that it's always the case that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That's a useful axiom, but it's not a biblical axiom. 
and it's only true sometimes. As far as I can see, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church when the blood of the martyrs comes in waves, when superpowers apply a lot of pressure and then back off for a bit. The church purified by the oppression comes out of the oppression and, and preaches with immense courage and faithfulness and understanding. And so many people are converted. Then the pressure goes on. There's another round of purification. That's what's happened in China with waves of this and waves of that and waves of this and waves of that. But if a superpower decides it's going to destroy the church, it's just going to kill every Christian it can find. It will destroy the church. So that there may be handfuls of Christians who meet underground here and there. But in terms of above ground Christians meeting, they're, they're gone. They're, they're hidden. And there are several countries in the world where that has been true in the last 50 years. And the Christians who suffered under those terms undoubtedly found it excruciatingly difficult. But they who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. Have you ever contemplated Acts chapter 5, verse 41? We're told there that after Peter and John were beaten up for the first time as Christian leaders in Jerusalem, they rejoiced because they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. How did they get to that position? I like to imagine it's something like this. Things are going quite swimmingly in Jerusalem. And one day John turns to Peter and says, Peter, are you quite sure that this is, um, this is going quite the way it's supposed to go? Peter says, what do you mean? And John says, well, on the night that he was betrayed, the master said, um, if people hated me, they will hate you. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. But, you know, he was hated and persecuted to death. And right now, our name is, uh, is, is, is well sung in the praises of the citizens of Jerusalem. You know, they, they, they want your shadow to fall upon them on the sidewalk. That's not what happened to Jesus. He was crucified, and, and you, 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 you get to, to, to have your, your, your shadow praised. And Peter replies, well, you know, this is called revival. It's, it's, it's the promise of the Spirit. It's, it's a wonderful time. Stop moaning. Stop complaining. It's a, it's a terrific time to be alive. Maybe pressure will come later. Yes, but Jesus did say, you know. And then they get beaten up, good and proper. And they say, yes, it's about time. They rejoiced because they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. I have no way of predicting what will happen in the Western world, certainly not in Northern Ireland. I sometimes say I'm neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet, and I work for a non-profit organization. So I do not know whether Northern Ireland will be visited by Reformation, 
renewal, rising church planting, a return for hunger for righteousness, biblical literacy, or alternatively that it slinks down into squalor, suffering of one sort or another, moral decay, violence, a return of the troubles, I have no idea. I have no idea. But I do know this. It is not our part to wallow in pity parties like those described in verse 27. Oh, God has forgotten us. Because we're talking about a God who is incomparable and dependable. And the ultimate proof of that from a canonical perspective is not only in the words of Isaiah the prophet, but in the person and work of his beloved son. How can anyone ever imagine that God is unreliable when he stands beside the cross? And those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Let us pray. Delivered seven centuries before they came to their initial fulfillment in the person of Christ Jesus, Heavenly Father, these words resonate in our ears again. We do not know when Christ is coming back, but we have seen so many of his blessings and power, so much of his transforming work flowing from the cross and the resurrection that we anticipate seeing yet more, yet more, as we join the church across the centuries and cry, yes, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Help us not to be so wedded to the culture that all we can see is the disappearance of the culture we have known and thus bemoan our fate in self-pity, but rather help us to look at things from heaven's perspective and remember all of the biblical evidence, all the truth, all the glorious manifestation of your own glory that assures us you are utterly incomparable and utterly dependable. So draw us out, therefore, in thanksgiving and adoration. In Jesus' name, amen. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.